Hello and welcome back to the album years and we are on part four of 1977. Part four, can you believe it? I mean, I knew 1977 was going to be a big one, Tim. You know, I predicted mm-hmm. three parts, but what happened? Is it just us becoming more sort of verbally incontinent or something? I think so. I think we've lost all discipline. Well, we've certainly talked a lot about a lot of records and, and that's the bottom line. There's a lot of records we wanted to yeah. talk about in 1977, isn't there? Now, one of the genres we haven't talked about at all is reggae. Now, I unfortunately, I feel, uh, I, I mean, I quite like reggae. I have yeah. some reggae albums, but I feel completely out of my depth talking about, I, mean, I feel like Mr. Greatest Hits when it comes <laughs> to reggae. Is it, oh yeah, I like Bob Marley's Greatest Hits, you know. Oh, it's very good. That Bob Marley. I mean, I have got the album from this year, Exodus. It's it's a fantastic record, but mm-hmm. I feel like to, you know, talk when I talk about reggae, it's like the guy that says he likes rock music and then he can only talk about the Beatles. Yeah, I don't. I mean, and, and the only comment you've got to make on it's got a good beat. It's got a good beat. It's yeah, got a good beat. But you've you've noted uh, Junior Mervyn, Police and yeah. Thieves. I know the song Police and Thieves. Yeah, uh, the Upsetters' Return of the Super Ape. I'm I'm out of my depth here now. Well, I was assuming you'd know that one. I mean, no, like you. I mean, I do like reggae and dub, and the only reason I sort of added it to this episode is that you didn't feel there was enough albums we were talking about. There wasn't enough. I felt that really it should go on for ten years, you know, rather than two episodes. Give it time. And um, a couple of people had said, it's like, what is wrong with you and Wilson? They, they, they've complained about a couple of things, saying, what's wrong with you and Wilson? Where is the blues? Where is the reggae? Well, I think, we, you know, to be fair to ourselves, we were very clear from the beginning, we're going to talk about things that we feel informed about, which is yeah. our own personal... T- it, we're not trying to make a podcast here which deals with everything that came out in a particular... Well, actually, we are trying to do that, <laughs> aren't we? But the bottom line is that we, you know, there are certain things that we feel qualified to talk about because we genuinely love them and we genuinely listen to them and have experience. And there are other things that I'm completely ignorant of. What would be the point of us discussing those things? Well, We'd just think, make fools of ourselves, wouldn't we? I think we're, you know, I think the point is, the reason I've added it is that we both do have some interest in reggae and especially dubbed to a certain extent. And I think in 77, it was interesting because reggae, particularly in the UK, was going through a commercial peak, primarily through Bob Marley, but there were other artists as well. But it was informing a lot of the early punks as well. There was a kind of combination of punk, yes. reggae. And I think that really comes to fruition um, with the great Clash album, you know, Sandinista for me, I think, and also elements on London Calling. As I've said, I really didn't like the Clash's first two albums. They just weren't for me in any way. And in, in some ways, I kind of think there's a kind of affected punk gruffness and then suddenly on London Town they come into the London own. Town oh London my god calling that's embarrassing London Town the wow. obviously the wonderful Paul yeah. McCartney and Wings album from 1978 which didn't feature much no. reggae or dub it must be said but I think that it came to fruition on, on you know London Calling and Sandinista and they revealed themselves as, as being an extremely gifted a uh, pop band with extraordinary eclectic influences. But yeah, I mean, like you, I, I like some dub, I like some reggae, but I can't consider myself to be an expert on it in any way whatsoever. This year I have, and I really like Exodus, of course, and I have, and I really like Junior Mervyn's Police and Thieves. And that's an interesting album because that's a bit like Steely Dan in a way, in that lyrically it's quite politically charged. But musically, it's very smooth. Uh, Junior Mervyn's got this kind of very, very beautiful, high-pitched voice. And it has a kind of narcotic, hypnotic quality as an album. So uh, it's one of those reggae albums that it's a delight to listen to from beginning to end. But you have to think about the lyrics or you it, it's a retrospective. Was this the year that Alfie and Donna had Uptown Top ranking number one single? I wish I could Cause, answer. Because that's probably the extent of my knowledge of okay. the number one novelty. I, I mean, like you, I like the influence of reggae. I mean, you know, you can hear it in lots of things. You can hear it in Public Image Limited. You can hear it in XTC. You can hear it later on. You can hear it in things like Massive Attack. And you can hear it in Rush. You can hear it in Rush. The Police. The Police, the police. obviously. But we're middle class white boys. That's our world. We, do, I mean, I, you know, I would be completely out of my depth talking about reggae. I have a few reggae albums. I really like them, and I, as you, like you, I love the influence of reggae um, on other music. But I don't feel qualified 
to talk about it. Yes. Well, we've also had, uh, I mean, one of the great unreleased No Man tracks is, is one of our dub pieces as well. I'd forgotten that. Which one's that? Do you not remember? We brought in Michael Bearpark because Michael Bearpark is a, is a real sound system aficionado. Right, is he? Yeah. Kim, King Tubby of, <laughs> exactly. of Letchworth. He, he is indeed. He is Prince Tubby yeah. from Letchworth. Yeah. And uh, he came in with, with various tapes and loops and we did um, a couple of dub experiments with him in the 90s. I'd completely forgotten that. And I also did, weirdly enough, I worked with um, a dub musician in Warrington in the early 90s, the Minister of Noise. And he was really interesting and obsessed with, with dub music and had um, an old studio with the old-fashioned looping and echo techniques. And it's amazing sound. But again, he was from Newton Lee Willows, which I didn't think necessarily qualified him, but he was superb. And we had a, a duo project called The Minister of Poise. Okay. Anyway, shall we, shall we draw a veil over our lack of we can. insight? Ex- Exodus, into... good. Police and Thieves, good. Yeah, but it's probably a bit like saying, oh, yeah, the best of the Beatles. That's my favourite album of this year. I mean, it, I don't it know. There's, yeah. probably all Any... these, there's probably all these amazing underground reggae in mentioning dub King Tubby, In mentioning King Tubby and Prince Jammy, to most aficionados, even in mentioning Horace Andy, to most aficionados, it's like you're just saying, oh, I like the Rolling Stones and the Who. Exactly. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. So there's probably all these amazing underground reggae and dub albums from 1977. Myself and Tim are unashamedly, uh, well, actually, I'm a bit ashamed. No, am I ashamed? No, it's just not my taste. It's just not my taste. Well, look, the, the I, only one we know is Duke Bear Park from Letchworth and the Minister yeah. of Poise from Newton and Willows. That's the obscure dub artists. Well, they're probably we so obscure that even the aficionados wouldn't know those. So there you go. One on for us. There you go. One nil. <laughs> yeah, one nil. So, let, let, but let, seriously, let's draw a veil over our, our over our ignorance in, of reggae and dub music, and and move on to something. Yeah. That, well, that uh, explains. I'm just saying you know, that partly explains why we've not dealt with reggae, because we're not qualified to talk about reggae. I don't know. I don't know enough about reggae. I haven't listened to enough about. Whereas I have listened to a lot of the other music, you know, and I feel qualified to talk about those. Yeah. And 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 be very sort of nerdy and anal about those. What things. about blues? No, ditto. I've never been particularly into the blues either. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, don't... I mean, I do, I, I, you know, obviously I'm aware of things obviously like Robert Johnson, Skip James. Did he make an album in 1977, Robert he Johnson? He made an album in 1977, yeah, probably quite a number of reissues. <laughs> and even the sort of country right. blues of Jimmy Rogers I'm quite familiar I'm with. I'm completely um... lost there, I'm afraid. Now, one thing I do know a yeah. lot about is electronic pioneers. Oh, I know lots about this. You know an awful lot. I know this. lots about this. Now, were it not for Vangelis in this category, we, we might as well call this, the, you know, the German yeah. department because most of these are German artists. Klaus Schultz released one of his greatest records this year, Mirage. We also had Can, now signed to Virgin, perhaps past their peak, but making their sore delight I album. always like the Virgin albums because I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because when Captain Beefheart went to Virgin... Initially, in the mid-70s, people don't like his albums. I always quite liked them because I thought it was him, in some ways, tempering his talent, but doing it in an interesting way. And I've got to say, I always liked those Can Virgin albums. thought they were quite underrated. Well, I think people like them, but I don't think anyone would argue they're in the same league as Tago, Mago, Future Days. That you know, the, early... the difference is, of course, that when they signed to Virgin, they were suddenly recording in big studios, multi-track recording, and they yeah. were able to overdub. And, and strangely, the music became slightly more neutered. And slightly more slick, whereas the early records they were literally recording everything live without any possibility to remix or edit or anything. Well, they could edit, but they couldn't remix or change mm-hmm. the balances of the instruments. Everything directly to two-track tape, and there's something very visceral about those early recordings for that reason. I think they were forced to be to be masters of editing, editing tape. Yeah. Whereas now they've got the option on these records, the one before and this one and the ones that came after, the Virgin Records. I think there's three, isn't there, on Virgin Landed, Flow Motion and Sword Delight. Delight. So yeah. this is the third of those records, probably the last one. They've got the opportunity to go into a big recording studios and it didn't quite suit them, I don't think. I think their recordings became a little bit slicker, a little bit less uh, on the edge. Uh, like those early mm. recordings really felt like they were on the edge of falling apart the whole time, which is what gave them that sort of power. Um, but I still like them. Yeah, it's I, more, it's more I still textured, like it's more controlled. And, more controlled. And of course, they have a kind of more conventional rhythm section in some ways because they brought in the, the guy from Traffic, didn't they? That's right, the guy with the unpronounceable name. Yeah. 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 
so yeah, and then we've also got Ashra's blackouts. Now Ashra also had signed to Virgin, having been independent. Mm-hmm. But I think by this time Ashra is just Manuel Gotching. This is a beautiful record of sequences and echoplex guitar. I mean, he very much had a sound at mm. this time. He was kind of plowing a particular furrow. This and the Klaus Schultz are what you'd say, kind of archetypes of the Berlin school yeah. of electronic music. And I think you're right. They've kind of, they've had that period of experimentation in 76, 77, 78. It's almost the peak in some ways because they have the sound. They're very complete albums and it's before they kind of venture off into some slightly less successful territories as well so it's a great period for this music well there's still i think with klaus schultz and ashra both of them there's still no sense that they're compromising or they're trying to to make more pop orientated music which would come certainly in the case of ashra yeah this track's 17 minutes long and i'm just gonna you know let it flow and 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 i like the i I like these records very much craftwork trans europe express which, mm. of course, name checks David Bowie and Iggy Indeed. Pop. Yeah, so we could have put that in the David Bowie. We could have. Could have put that in the David Bowie and Chums section. Obviously, Crawford, you know, one of the most ridiculously... I can't remember if we talked about them on the show before. We have done, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the most ridiculously influential bands in history. In fact, there's an argument to say their influence is as great, if not greater, in some respects, of something like the Beatles, because we live in a world now where electronic music really is dominant and so much of it comes from well we talked about the Giorgio Moroder Donna Summer mm-hmm. record uh, in a previous episode but obviously so much of it so you can sort of track trace back to craft work mm. even this idea of de-emphasizing personality sure so craft work experimenting with putting robots of themselves on stage this is just before the peak the man machine peak I am mm. you know robots and and the model but um Trans Europe Express, is, of course, itself, the title track has been massively influential over mm. the years, sampled endlessly, imitated endlessly. And I think as well, it's part, you know, going back once more to image that I think Tangerine Dream, Ashra can, to a lesser extent, had that kind of psychedelic hippie underground. Yeah hangover but interestingly that's where craftwork also started and it is i agree yeah yeah. but they somehow managed to detach themselves from it while also being a strong part of it and they were dusseldorf weren't they and it also has a much more of a pop sensibility let's let's be honest and also that kind of underachieving voice as well it's quite compelling isn't it the sort of robotic underachieving voice i mean when tangerine dream attempted to write pop and and have songs and vocals it just it just didn't really work you know um, well, this works. It's a perfect fit to an extent. Yeah. So also this year we have Vangelis Spiral. I'm a massive Vangelis fan. I mean, this is a guy that just created a whole musical world of his own. Um, very prolific mm-hmm. through through the 70s and the 80s. Spiral, the title track particularly, is, is a phenomenal piece. If you're interested in sequences or arpeggiators, this is one of the definitive sequencer arpeggiator tracks. But instantly recognisable, isn't he, Vangelis? Very much so, yeah. I Just think the, the choice of sounds and... Well, sounds, processing, everything. And it is yeah. interesting, because obviously, you know, these <clears throat> the whole thing about synthesis, synthesizers and so on, it's ubiquitous. You know, this equipment mm. is ubiquitous. Anyone can make music with it. Anyone can make a sound. And so it's always fascinating when you get artists like Vangelis who you recognise with one note. And it's mm. not only his use of synth it's his use of pianos an electric mm. piano as well and of course it's in in the processing but he's got a very distinctive sometimes classically inspired harmonic palette as well which is quite different from a lot of the other electronic artists and yeah. he's more i suppose authentically symphonic than he's most a player. people he's a player yeah. yeah i mean whereas the guys from tangerine dream you would never say well we're keyboard you know pianos no. piano players or keyboard players He's a real player, and you can tell he's got the chops as well. Mm. But what's interesting, we, you know, we talk about how Kraftwerk have had a massive influence on electronic music and dance music and DJ culture, and, and arguably Can also would have had kind of influence on that too. Vangelis has had a massive influence on the whole world of film soundtrack music. Mm. I mean, you hear his influence through so much contemporary soundtrack music. Obviously, he's created some of the most iconic soundtracks of all time, you know, things like Chariots of Fire, Blade Runner. And I think a lot of people, you know, that for a lot of people in the world of soundtracking, that's still a touchstone of how to create mm. incredible, how to soundtrack a movie. 
uh, go back and listen to how Vangelis was doing. And I understand he used to do it by literally having the movie up on a screen yeah. and playing the piano and coming. Although didn't Miles Davis do that in the 50s with... Um... Apparently he did do yeah. that with, with Lift to the Scaffold. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Beautiful record. A, a lovely record, yeah. All right, Tim, let's move on to your favourite genre. Yeah, go on. Macho rock. Oh, great. Big fan of macho rock music. Yeah. And to quote Stuart Lee, by the way, folks, sometimes I say things, I don't mean that, I mean the opposite of that. So I'm being a bit sarcastic. Tim, macho rock. It's not really your thing, is it? It's not really my thing either. I have to say, we've kind of talked about some of these things already. Sticks. Yeah. Biff Wilson. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I did go through my phone. Yeah. When I was 11, 12 years old, I discovered the new wave British heavy metal. I quite liked it, you know, and I still like a lot of those records. But generally speaking, macho rock's never been my thing. Um, we've talked about some of these things already. Sticks. Did we talk about Foreigner in the... Because they're another band I would put in that sort of category. Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't, but we don't need to discuss it. Although no. that, this was their um, self-titled debut, I think, with a couple of huge hits. Okay. What were the huge hits? Cold as Ice. Oh, I know that one. Yeah. Which of these and were, Ian McDonald, King Crimson, of course, was. Yeah, of course, was yeah. In the band. There are some records on this list that I do know very well. Gone. ACDC's Let yeah. There Be Rock or Late There Be Rock, as you've written here. Late There Be Rock. That's Another a very good album. Terrible era. Let There Be Rock. Probably my favourite ACDC album. It has yeah. a whole lot of Rosie and the title track. Mm hmm. Rock and roll at its absolute finest. ACDC, they just have the definitive. Heavy rock and roll band sound, don't they? I mean, the sound of the guitars, Angus's guitar, uh, the rhythm section just always just get... I mean, we were talking about this in one of the other episodes, weren't we? That there's nothing particularly technically proficient about what mm. they do. They just lock into the perfect groove. I think they've got a very, very distinctive sound and yeah. also quite a distinctive riff rhythm you know for me in some ways they're they're like a template for rock in the way that the early rolling stones are a template for mm. rock acdcr and they have a sound which they perfected and yeah i mean i i'm kind of familiar with the bon scott era and the very very first brian johnson album and i in terms of macho rock really my entire knowledge is sort of late 70s rock bands and i was kind of wondering you know what this kind of idea of how music enters your life and why you like it at certain points and i've never really liked meat and potatoes rock or rock and as i said you know when i was at school i absolutely sort of despise the contemporary pop and contemporary rock bands but i did very very briefly sort of late 79 early 1980 have a thing for hard rock bands and that would be like ufo acdc thin lizzy to an extent as well and I think it was partly because it was a really difficult time emotionally and I'm kind of wondering whether there's an aspect that that music has a sense of catharsis I don't know I mean you know I think similarly to you at the about around about the age of um 11 or 12 I really loved the new wave of British heavy metal but then it wasn't enough after a while it just wasn't enough for me because I think you know, again, this thing of having grown up in a house where I was hearing records like Dark Side of the Moon and Tubular mm. Bells and Saturday Night Fever. And there seemed to be so much going on in the music, all these layers, all these different textures, the production, the sound design. They seemed like, you know, to coin a phrase, they were cinema for the ears, you know, mm. amazing kind of musical journeys. And... So again, like you, a lot of people I was at school with were listening to the, this more direct heavy rock and I quite liked it. But ultimately, there wasn't enough there for me as someone that was fascinated by the idea of production and yeah. sound design. They're quite stripped down. They're quite raw records. I mean, a lot of the time they are essentially representations of the way the music will be played live. Sure. I'm not talking about the the, the Stixes and the more American side, but certainly some of these ACDC, um, UFO. You can imagine the, the, the recording process is very similar to just recording a live album in that sense there's not a lot of overdubbing there's not a lot not a lot of layering there's not there's nothing much in the way of sound design or production gags mm -hmm. and to be fair that was pretty much all the stuff that i was fascinated uh, UFO with. had it a bit more because i think they were more kind of i always kind of saw them as being a hard rock equivalent of bruce springsteen you know their lyrics were story lyrics and they clearly listened to a lot of springsteen plus they were one of the few bands that had very prominent synths particularly on, you know, Lights Out and and the odd 
epic and ballad. So there were, there were different levels, which you wouldn't get necessarily in ACDC, obviously. And of course, Thin Lizzy as well. I sort of always saw Lynette to an extent as a descendant of Van Morrison, but mm. in a harder rocking style, you know, and, and they managed very, very effectively to make music that was kind of hard rock, pop, and somehow kind of singer-songwriter oriented. Yeah, Thin Lizzy is quite diverse, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you, you would get these, sometimes you forget, and then you go back and you listen to the records and you realise mm. this beautiful acoustic ballad. And again, very distinctive voice, yeah. great yeah. singer, great songwriter, really. Yeah. Uh, so Bad Reputation was this year. And is mm. that the album that Gary Moore uh, plays guitar on? I thought that was Brian Robertson. Uh, and Gary Moore plays on Black Rose. Black Rose, okay, so... I remember the title, Trevor. I'd have to remind myself exactly which tracks are on this record. The, the Thin Lizzy albums I know the best are Jailbreak and Johnny Fox. This is a similar way. It's slightly tougher. Okay. I think, I think this has got Don't Believe a Word, or is that on? Oh, the, no, yeah. that's on Johnny Fox. Oh, okay. That's great, yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Great single, yeah. I mean, I really like the first two albums, the ones where they're, yeah. they're kind of finding the sound. Yeah. And they've kind of come out more of, it's almost Van Morrison and Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac are maybe the touchstones. Yeah. And there's lots of keyboards. And, yeah. yeah all sorts well, of Mellotron, of course. Mellotron, so. yeah. In fact, doesn't Cloda Simons? Cloda Fovia Hex. Yeah, is on Mellotron. Mellotron, yeah. So also this year, we've got uh, Queen's News of the World. Now, this might be... Now, I'm, I, you know, I got in trouble once because I reviewed... I got asked to review some Queen reissues for Classic Rock magazine. And I made the point that Queen were one of the most incredible bands of all time. But I, th I felt personally that they were ultimately a singles band. Mm -hmm. And the reason I said that is because when you listen to the albums... And there's a, re there's a reason why you don't see Queen's albums very often in the top the blah, 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 albums mm -hmm. of all time. is because they're a little bit patchy and there are always these extraordinary singles or, you know, one or two songs that are just mind-blowing. And then there's what I would call a fair bit of filler on most of the mm -hmm. Queen albums. And I love Queen, don't get me wrong. So I got in trouble because I kind of said this. Mm -hmm. And then the readers all wrote in and said, what does Stephen Wilson know about Queen? Blah, 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 blah. They're amazing. And they are, they're amazing. Um, but News of the World is a good example. It's got some of the most amazing things I've ever heard from a rock band on it. Most of them were released as singles. You know, mm. if, you look, if you look at the track listing of News of the World, it starts with what, what a triple whammy this is. We will rock you. We Are The Champions, which I had on a double A-side single mm -hmm. about you at the time. Yeah, yeah. Sheer Heart Attack, which is one of Roger Taylor's sort of more metal, mm -hmm. sort, which is an amazing piece of rock. Yeah. Um, if you want to hear Queen rock out, that for me is the definitive Queen rocking out track. And then Spread Your Wings, the John Deacon ballad, which was also a single, it wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Which is a gorgeous, beautiful song. But then you've also got things like Sleeping On The Sidewalk, which is a sort of... <laughs> A sort of very meat yes. potatoes, bluesy workout, and it's like the album is all the albums tend to be littered with these sort of filler tracks between these moments of pure pop rock genius. And for me, listening to a Queen album, you always come away with the impression that if they'd had a little bit more time or if they'd had a little bit more material, they could have made an album that would be thought of alongside your Dark Side of the Moons or your yeah. classic rock canon records, your your Paranoids and whatever, mm -hmm. or your Led Zeppelin 4s. And I feel that that record for Queen is the greatest hits album. Mm -hmm. That I mean, that's one of the best-selling records of all time, isn't yeah. it? Deservedly so, because every track on it is just a moment of absolute genius. But the albums themselves, outside of the greatest hits, are always a little bit... Patchy, and this is no exception for me, although probably I, I think on balance I would say this would be one of my top two or three Queen albums. Yeah. Um, it's, it's more, I mean, take? they were always very playful, and this is maybe more playful and more loose than they'd been before, because of course, when they start off, you know, especially thinking Queen 2, it's quite consistently majestic. I mean, arguably that's the one consistent album they made but you're right yes. they've never but sheer heart attack is pretty consistent too the, the first few records they made i think are more they're, they're thinking more like an album span but yeah I, I think once they start having the hits then a lot of the a lot of the attention seems to go into these 
two or three songs on every record that they kind of know are going to be the big singles. But I think even on the early albums, you know, Sheer Heart Attack is really quite good. But actually, you know, Killer Queen is a remarkable single. Amazing. Yeah. And in some ways, I think you're right that maybe 90% of the best of Queen was what ended up on the singles. You know, they're not one of those. There are deep cuts and there are some fantastic album only tracks, but they were a band where maybe 90% of their best material was what the public knows. So I think that there's an aspect uh, of truth to that. And you're right, they never made an album that could ever be considered in the league of Led Zepp 4 or, exactly. or Paranoid. Or does it. A and consistent, powerful statement. And yeah. I personally quite like some of their excursions. I think it's partly sequencing as well. I think it's almost like here's the breather, here's the pause between the big mm. tracks. I think especially on a night at the opera, you know, these kind of um, mini pastiches of 1920s and so on. Yeah, um, yeah. And they're never meant to be anything other than frivolous throwaways that are a breather between the more serious tracks. And so I've always kind of had slightly more time for them than not. Um, is is there also an element perhaps with Queen that because they were all writers, there was four writers, that sometimes material that perhaps wouldn't have got on otherwise gets through because it's like everyone has to have an equal part of the pie, you know. So, I mean, I love some Roger Taylor songs, but there are also some songs that, that he has on some of the records. I feel like, you know what, I'm sure Freddie had a better song than that. Yeah. So, and and like you say, uh, Freddie also had this this tendency to have his sort of twenties uh, pastiches, bring back that Leroy Brown Seaside Rendezvous. Mm. There seems to be one on every album, of, you know, for a certain period of time. And you know, they you listen to them. Well, that's fun. I enjoyed mm. that. Don't want to hear it again, really. Don't yeah. really want to hear it again. Imagine that being in the middle of Led Zeppelin Four. You know, <laughs> it, it, how that would change your perspective of that record. But I think this is it. They were always. A very, very versatile band. I mean, obviously they did their early, was it 1982 Hot Space, the disco I like album that as well, yeah. which I like this as yeah. well. I and mean, I love the fact they made it. Yeah, me too. Um, and they were always incredibly versatile. And there's a real power, because when you're mentioning Roger Taylor, and I think Cheer Heart Attack on this is as vicious yeah. as any punk two-minute single. Yeah, I agree. It's almost like they're saying, we can actually do can this do in that. our sleep. And they do it so well. Do they do it better than Gentle Giant did with Bet You Thought We Wouldn't Do It? Yes. Considerably so. But it's more metal, isn't it, than punk? I mean, at the end of the day... this. But is... it's hypercharged metal. It's very aggressive, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, that's it. They, they were a band with talent to burn. And, you know, maybe the part of it, part of it also is you think of the, the schedule that bands were on in the 70s. Um, yeah. compared to the schedule that bands are on now, you know, the, where rock bands can take 10 years to make an album if they want, or longer, you know. And it doesn't seem particularly abnormal anymore to do that. But in the 70s, if you didn't make an album every year, yeah, it was, where, where have they disappeared to, you know? I think you, you're absolutely right. Though sometimes I kind of wonder, if, I've thought about this before, you know, because again, I, I, I always marvel at, say, Ian Anderson's, schedule how the band were almost permanently on tour six or seven months of a year and he managed to make one studio album a year from something like 68 to 1980 which were incredibly different it's like how yeah. do you evolve you know this is amazing progression from this was to a well, and what's happened in between ian is while a, you're touring yeah ian is a is a freak anomaly i mean it's just unbelievable because not only was he doing that there was usually twice as much material yes that yes. didn't get on the album but, i don't know how the hell he was it, doing it relating to a certain extent yeah. to how we would write and sometimes i think when you're writing with restrictions you do more because remember when we first started uh no man i'd come to you on very specific weekends so we had maybe two or three days in three months that was it we were incredibly focused, incredibly prolific and incredibly diverse during that time. We tried everything out because that's all we had. And a bit like Queen, most of what we did was filler. <laughs> no, no, that's not fair on Queen, is it? Uh, I mean, we're just talking about a very small percentage of what Queen did. But I'm saying, that, yeah. you know, perhaps these restrictions on bands like Queen, Jethro Tull, Led Zeppelin actually focus them because when you found a lot of artists now when mm. there aren't those pressures and people have 20 years to make an album or 10 months mm. to write a song 
actually, it isn't necessarily as charged, it isn't necessarily as diverse, it isn't necessarily mm. as vital. So sometimes the restrictions on art can produce better results. That's true, but I think I think it depends on the band, it depends on the artist. I think in the case of Queen, I mean, even as I'm saying this, um, I'm looking and I'm thinking, well, hold on, they had four writers. Couldn't yeah. each of them have come up with two or three songs, really strong songs every year? Freddie's only got three songs on this record. And arguably only two of them are really album worthy, which is Get Down, Make Love and We Are The Champions. And, and you know, there's an argument to say, well, when one of those songs is We Are The Champions, fair enough, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if one of those songs is Bohemian Rhapsody, okay. <laughs> you know, you're kind of entitled to have a couple of other tracks that are maybe not quite up to that standard and but it, but it seems as you say there isn't quite the quality control because again another album from this year where there are several writers several singers rumors there's clearly mm. <clears throat> impeccable quality control mm. so that's queen uh, news of the world uh, motorhead's debut album got to love a bit of motorhead haven't you <laughs> Come on, Tim, you love Motorhead. I know you do. I've heard you say Overkill's your favourite Motorhead record. I bought Overkill on single during that period in 1979. Great single. I bought lots of Motorhead records at this time. I bought the Leaving Here Golden Years EP. Mm-hmm. I bought Ace of Spades on 7-inch. I didn't buy this album the year it came out. I was nine. I wasn't yeah. quite into my heavy rock listening yet. But um, the formula's there, isn't it, from the beginning, pretty much. It is, and it's a formula that they don't necessarily deviate from. Ever. And no. they are one of... I mean, I do... What was it? Yes, I was, I was thinking there's a compilation album that they have, and it's something like... The whatever. best of Motorhead. No, it's not the best of Motorhead. It's, it's along the, the idea of, you know, louder, faster, forever, or something along those lines. Yeah. And that is what they were. And they produced a couple of, of very memorable singles, always a hugely distinctive sound. And they had so much energy, a bit like Sheer Heart Attack. It was hyper-driven metal that yeah. had appeal to the punks as well. And I think that their um, their image probably played into that as well because they had this, you know, they could have come out of any pub in a sense. There's that really quite earthbound image that somehow tied in with the times better than a lot of rock and metal bands. Is it? And I think part of it is because they were quite grubby, weren't they? They never they never kind of went down the spandex, you know, glammy. No. And they, they, they were very resistant to that, even during the heyday of 80s American rock. I think Motorhead were essentially still making this sort of grubby... You never saw Lemmy with a perm. No. Or a or pair of spandex trousers, yeah. at least not to my knowledge. But And I think in that way, because of that, they probably had some lean years, but they've come out the other end sounding much more timeless, haven't they? Yeah, I think, like ACDC, they have a great distinctive sound that they've perfected almost from the off. Because again, with ACDC, I think they kind of had it on their very, very early albums. Mm. Um, you know, Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap, I think, is, is, is a great album. Mm. But I've got a lot more time for ACDC, partly... I think it's the pace of the music. There's actually, it sounds bizarre, but there is more pause for reflection on an ACDC album. Well, There's slightly more variety of tone. Well, also ACDC, they're kind of funky. Yeah. They've, I don't mean that in the sort of traditional George Clinton sense, but they've got grooves. Great yeah, grooves. Yeah. Whereas I think Motorhead was more of a sort of power rush. It's pummeling. Um, it's pummeling. It's a, it's a rush. And you can hear the massive influence that, that Motorhead were, would have on things like grindcore and speed metal and thrash metal. I mean, that's all, yeah. that kind of all but comes originally from Motorhead, doesn't it? ACDC, you know, don't they use at one point a bagpipe solo on one of the tracks? Well, there's kind of this slight variety. And also Bon Scott could be a very funny lyricist. Right. As I believe Big Balls testifies to. Right. Yes. Vardis had bagpipes on one of their early new wave of British heavy metal records. Just want okay. to say that. The World's Insane also has Jules Holland on yeah. piano on one, of the, on one of their records. So we like Motet. How can you not, how can you not love Motet? And actually, you know, Ace of Spades is one of the great pop singles of all Ace time. Ace of Spades it? is a great pop single. I agree with I you. I mean, pop, you know, in this sense, using it in the broadest sense, but it's catchy, it's hooky, it's over in two and a half minutes. Phenomenal riff. Phenomenal riff. It's it's pop. I mean, uh, the, my problem, though, I, I do, I really respect them, think they're quite brilliant, but the, my problem is, I, I think, Overkill, Bomber, Ace of Spades, listen to them and that's it for me. I think I've had my fill. Yeah, I mean, I think 
to be a Motorhead fan means immersing yourself pretty much in the same kind of world, uh, you know, ad infinitum. They don't, I don't think they were most diverse. That's the problem I have with, you know, this comes back to the, my original point about at the end of the day, the heavy rock stuff, there wasn't enough there for me. I mean, I didn't think I was going to be surprised mm. when Saxon released their new album. I wasn't expecting to be surprised by a radical new direction, a radical reinvention of their sound. Yeah. I think the rock bands, they were very tied to a particular archetype and they kind of ploughed that. Uh, ACDC famously pr- pretty much made the same record their whole career. I yeah. think there was an element that Motorhead did that too, and that's fine. You know, there are lots of bands that do that, and yeah. that's kind of what. I mean, that's fans why I, th- I think Thin Lizzy and UFO, to a certain extent, are quite different because they are closer to songwriters in a rock band, and they, mm-hmm. there is, I think, more to them than just that kind of mm-hmm. pummeling rock shock. So let's let's leave rock behind and talk about another musical area that we know fuck all about. Go on. Uh, Afrobeat. Fella my, fa- my favourite Afrobeat album, the best of Fella Kuti, yeah? No, I, lo- I mean, well, I think the thing is, we both love Fella Kuti. I like Fella Kuti, yeah. But I'm sure there's lots of other artists that we should be talking about in relation to Afrobeat. The- Fella Kuti is like the, again, he's like the George Michael of Afrobeat, <laughs> isn't he? You know? It is. Like, oh, I like Fella Kuti. Yeah. It's like, well, he's, he's, the said, he's the equivalent of Bob Marley in the is reggae. Elton John, yeah, we just mentioned. Yeah, if you're, you've heard of Elton John. I've heard of Elton John. If you, my favourite album, the best of Elton John. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, if you're ignorant of reggae, Bob Marley's the one reggae artist you've heard of. If you're ignorant yeah. of Afrobeat, Fela Kuti's probably the one. He's the one artist I've heard of. I've got some Fela Kuti albums. I love them. They're all very similar, but what an amazing sound. Completely unique. It is an amazing sound. I think part of the problem with Fela Kuti, it's a bit like those... Mid seventies Miles Davis live albums that they are all brilliant, mostly indistinguishable. I mean, there are there are different influences. You know, there's um, He Miss Road, for example, um, Fellow Cootie, where you can hear slight dub influences, and there's also psychedelic influence. There's some really wayward organ on it. The album's produced by Ginger Baker. Um, so some of the albums are quite different and some of the grooves are just compelling and brilliant. And most of the albums tended to be two tracks, three tracks at most, where you just have 17 minute grooves that built and built became more intricate call and response vocals. And I suppose the big influence on pop music would be Talking Heads Remain in Light, I think, mm. have that fella mm. groove. So if you like the grooves of Remain in Light listen to a Fela Kuti album and you can hear where they came from. And obviously David Byrne and yeah. the band made them their own and they did something very special with it. But those Fela albums, they're really interesting. And again, they were kind of recorded live and in a raw situation. So he made usually. eight albums. That he released eight well, that's, albums Yeah, that's why I mentioned it. He made eight albums in 1977. Including Zombie and No Agreement, which yeah. I think I have. I couldn't tell you how those differ to all the other records he made. But you're right, he had this He had this kind of blueprint for a Fela Kuti song. It was usually about 15 minutes long. It would have a little bit of him rapping and then the girls would do the call and response thing and then he would pick up his saxophone and he couldn't really play. And it's one of the beautiful <laughs> things about Fela Kuti is he's kind of got this outsider musician sort of temperament which he approaches the music with. he pick up anything. He'll play the organ and the saxophone. He can't really yeah. play but he'll have he'll do it very enthusiastically and the grooves are phenomenal i mean he, you know he's he's kind of got that james brown thing where he yeah. he just gets tony his, allen the drummer yeah it? it's uh, and it's very visceral and it's very very infectious and joyous he'll get into this. and of course a lot of the lyrics probably would pass pass us by because a lot of them are about the situation in yeah. in in his country at the no, time and but i love the sound i love this sort of brew he creates with the musicians mm. and the sound the brass, the girl singers, the fact he can't really play, but he doesn't doesn't stop him taking these extended saxophone solos. It's a great sound, isn't it? And yes, you're, you're totally right. I mean, it was kind of appropriated by people like Talking Heads and also some of the British, you know, funk, funk, mm. industrial funk bands like Twenty Three Skidoo, uh, Four Hundred Blows. You a certain ratio. You can hear how they were. Yeah. Uh, certain Rocha also famously had, you know, trumpet players that couldn't really play. Or, it, but I love that. You yeah, know? no, no. And yeah, when I was talking about him, Miss Road, the organ is partly wayward because sometimes it is appallingly played. Just can't play. And they're not going to overdub. They're not going to yeah. re-record it. But there are, you know, again, if you immerse yourself in 10 Falakuti albums, there are differences 
in tempo, in the particular influences that come in. And I suppose, you know, if you were to describe it to somebody who doesn't know, there is a, an, an obviously distinctive Afrobeat sound, but in some ways, based on what came before it, there's that relentlessness of mid-70s live, 90, you know, Mars Davis albums. And also, I think when James Brown was doing the extended funk workouts in the late 60s, early 70s, which I love, mm. there's an element of that running through it as well, for sure. You know, 77, I mentioned him here because obviously he made eight albums. So Just very... Eight. Now we come to another genre. Now, there's only one record in this genre in 1977. There's a very good reason for that, is that this is the record that invented the genre. There was, well, you know, you can always go back in history and find something that was a precedent. But really and honestly, there was nothing else that existed within this genre before this record. And there were a lot more records in the genre that came in subsequent years. But in 1977, it was released right at the end of 1977, November 1977. It created a new genre. This is the flip side of punk for me. This is true punk in a way, because this is... Music which was made by non-musicians um, in a very in a very punk way, but it's not just reverting to guitar-based drums. In fact, quite the opposite. This is music that is made with uh, electronic sound, noise, found sound. I'm talking, of course, about Throbbing Gristle's first album, Second Annual Report, released on their own label, which they created specially to release it, Industrial Records. And yes, in doing so, they created the genre of industrial music by naming their music industrial music, by naming their label industrial music. And of course, the legacy of industrial music continues to this day. In fact, we even hear it in things like Billie Eilish. You know, you listen to a Billie Eilish record, you can hear the influence of industrial music. It was created by Throbbing Gristle in 1977. At least the notion of industrial music was created by Throbbing Gristle in 1977. This is a bizarre album. It's, a, it's one of the few albums that when I first listened to it, the hairs on the back of my neck genuinely stood up. It's incredibly lo-fi. Most of it was recorded on very primitive recording equipment, direct to stereo. Some of it sounds like it's um, being recorded in the toilet next door to the venue. Some of it's recorded live. But it's truly, for me, truly terrifying music. And it's... In many ways, it's everything that punk wanted to be, but wasn't. It's using electronic sound rather than guitars. It's using audio verite, lo-fi. Before lo-fi was even a thing, this is a, a very deliberately lo-fi record. Um, it's also the beginning of something that a lot of people may be uncomfortable with, this kind of fascination with serial, which is something that became part of industrial music, fascination with things like serial killers, not particularly politically correct subject matter. Tim, have you listened to this record? This is a very important record to me. Have you listened to this record? See, I feel awful here because I have listened to it over the years, probably a couple of times, on YouTube which I'm sure gives me the full experience of the album. And I can't really say very much about it. I thought it was all right. Really? Okay. So it completely sort of missed the mark with you. It's well, such an important record to me. Yeah. I mean, it changed... Honestly, the, of the few records I've heard in my lifetime that changed the way I thought about music, this is one of them. I couldn't believe it when I put the record on that it was so willfully ugly unpleasant, badly recorded, and yet it had a power to it, a power which literally made the, the let's say, the, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Um, and I still feel that when I hear when I hear tracks like Slugbait, which is, this, it's so ugly. The mm -hmm. story is ugly. The sound is ugly. To me, it's the first time I think I would have, and, I, and again, maybe it's something to do with when I discovered it. I would have heard yeah. it probably for the first time when I was like 13 or 14 years old. I had never heard anything like this. It was almost to me like somebody had the balls to actually release this. This ugly but intense, uh, intense music. And I became completely uh, uh, you know, obsessed with it for a while. I went out and bought all the other Throbbing Gristle records and I discovered other artists like Cabaret Voltaire, SPK. And then, of course, you hear the influence it had on, on the later generation of industrial artists like Nine Inch Nails and Coil. Mm. Um, 
to me, this is a revolution in a single record. But maybe you had to be there. You're, or you had to hear it at the it's right time. It's difficult because, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the kind of... I think it had a profound impact on a lot of music in, in the late 80s because like, the next year we're going to do is 1987 and probably bands even like Skinny Puppy. Massive. Wouldn't um, have existed without this record. So I can see the long-term influence. And some of those bands in the 80s, I suppose they might take it even further in terms of the grit, the ugliness. So I'm thinking Swans, for example, as well as Skinny Puppy. Wasn't, wasn't Skinny Puppy where they were using the sounds of animals that were undergoing vivisection yeah, but that's and more, so on? Yeah, but Skinny Puppy is more EBM. It's more, it's more, it's more the sort of Nine Inch Nails approach to industrial yeah. music. Very, very, elect, you know, very kind of electronic rhythms and things like that. A lot of, thro- a lot of second annual report is almost like uh, music concrete. I mean, the, the whole of the second side is taken up by a single 20-minute piece, which is a soundtrack to an imaginary film. And it's proto sort of industrial uh, ambient, you know, yeah. uh, dark There ambient, is an ambient it? quality. I think that's the thing. I think there is a dark, atmospheric, ambient quality to it. And I guess that, for me, it just kind of hits me in the same way that when I listen to some of the key Derek Bailey recordings, it's almost a sound. It's a noise. It's a sound. And... Once I've heard it, I've heard it. And I can't necessarily lose myself in it. I suppose I'm more interested in how people then use that sound. So in the case of Nine Inch Nails, you're right. They might not be making that sound without the influence of Throbbing Gristle. But I'm more interested in how Trent Reznor takes aspects of one genre, takes aspects of another genre, takes aspects of another genre. So in effect, Throbbing Gristle are one element of ten yeah, but you're not hearing. Yeah, but that's that's making it sound like this is just some kind of investigation of sound design. It's much more than that. There is an intensity to the lyrical content. It, to me, oh, yeah, no, I'm saying how it impacts on me. And the same with free yeah. jazz. It's the way I feel about free jazz. I can hear it. I can see it. Isolated free jazz does nothing for me for the most part, but I love it when it's used in different contexts or it's a surprising element. To say a Scott Walker track when he uses music concrete or free jazz, that it comes out of nowhere in an unexpected context. So I kind of love it when it's used in a different way in itself. Okay. I'm not quite sure why it doesn't engage me. Okay. I mean, I love it. it it's, it, there's a sickness. And again, you have to be a sort of person who would respond to that kind of thing. It, to me, there's a parallel between what was happening in black metal, you know, later on in, you know, in the eighties. And there's this kind of sickness and it's also in the fabric of the way the music is recorded. The the fact that it's not recorded in a professional studio by professional musicians. It is it's got this kind of atavistic, animal like quality to it. Um, and it's actually quite puerile in a way, this this obsession with serial killer chic, for want of a better expression. But you can imagine the impact that would have had on a 13-year-old kid like me who was looking for dark, I want dark <laughs> music, you know. But the most dark thing I'd heard probably until that point would have been the first Black Sabbath album. And suddenly I'm hearing this album, second annual report. It's sick. It's absolutely demented and sick. And it has a power to me and obviously to a lot of other people, I mean, the, the the, the sort of waves it sent out are still being felt today. And it is the beginning. You're hearing the beginning of a musical genre. And how many records can you say that about? And it's like we were saying earlier about punk. It's like when you listen to a lot of punk music, you can hear there are so many precedents. Yeah. It's essentially just rock and roll tarted up in a new, mm. in a new outfit. And you listen to something like the second annual report by Throbbing Gristle, which is in many ways is the flip side of punk. It's it's kind of the electronic version of it. Outsider musicians, people who can't necessarily play, approaching. I mean, Cozy Fanny Tutti playing guitar. She couldn't play guitar. She didn't even know how to tune it. She's just making sound with it in this very in you know again very instinctive atavistic way, and there is a power in that. It's interesting. We were talking about the power of some of the jazz records when it has this kind of devotional quality to mm. it completely committing yourself to something, believing in it, living in it. Yeah. And, in you know, these guys, Throbbing Gristle guys, they were all sharing a house together at the time. They were living and breathing their music. They were hated. They were vilified by the parts of the music press who didn't understand the music, didn't understand what they were trying to do. They had this show at the ICA called Prostitution, which was targeted by the mainstream uh, media in the UK as an affront against 
polite society in much the same way the Sex Pistols were vilified mm. by. So there was a similar thing going on with Throbbing Gristle, albeit at a, a lower, perhaps high, less high profile level. There's not many albums I would say are radical. I would say this is radical. I understand you don't like it. It doesn't do much for you. Perhaps it's because the, the vocabulary has become much more familiar. Mm-hmm. When I heard it, I had never heard anything like it. Nine Inch Nails didn't even exist. You know, the whole sort of second wave of industrial music and EBM music hadn't even begun at that point, at least not to my knowledge. So when I heard it in the mid 80s as a, as a school kid, it just completely changed my idea about what music could be uh, in that sense. So I understand how to you coming, coming to it now, yeah. a bit of noise, a bit of electronic music, bloke mumbling about serial killers, mm-hmm. it's all right, you know. Uh, and perhaps in that sense, it, it kind of has done it, it served its purpose and done its job, historically speaking. Yeah. And isn't relevant now. But anyway, for me. Mm. I mean, there isn't much of an influence on it, on Billy Joel's The Stranger, I find, Robin Gristle. There isn't, there isn't any influence on anything else this this year. <laughs> this is why this record, this, this category, industrial, this is the only record in it, because it's the only industrial record that was released. For a few months, it was the only mm. industrial record music record that had been released by anybody maybe there was a few underground tapes or something but this is vinyl uh and then obviously in 1978 1979 you're going to get a complete explosion in particularly in underground tape cassette culture yeah people making records at home with just i mean some terrible records you know people are thinking they can just bang some saucepans together and put it through a distortion Mm -hmm. box and that's quote unquote industrial well i suppose in some ways isn't this the musical equivalent of the most abstract art or even the bricks the infamous Completely. bricks and 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 throbbing gristle came from a performance art group called coombe transmissions so this was like an extension this was like their musical extension of being performance artists mm. putting installations together um, very confrontational installations and performance art pieces and the the move into music was almost incidental uh, in that sense, but it's but it's interesting that that somebody can a performance artist can just decide you know what I'm today I'm going to be a musician can't mm. play. You know Genesis Pierce played a trumpet never didn't even you know <laughs> played a trumpet on this record didn't know how to play it but put it through enough effects boxes and it sounded like uh, the the sort of dying screams of a of a slaughtered animal, and again you know that sounds puerile now but. In, in the mid-80s, as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old boy, when I first heard it, it sent a pretty strange feeling into my body, which I I kind of responded to and I liked. Anyway, we'll, we'll draw a line under that then. Uh, very important record for me. Completely irrelevant record <laughs> to Tim. 